Good morning, everyone. Hope everyone is having a good day. It's good to see so many smiling faces. For those of you just joining us as our guests, we want to welcome you to Arden First Baptist. We are a place where our mission is to lead ordinary people into extraordinary life in Christ. And we like to say we're a place where you can belong, believe, and become. So we're so happy you're here. If you would take your Bibles, we're going to be in James 4. And if you don't have a Bible, we do have it on the screen. And we have listening guides in your bulletin that you can take out and follow along with us. So James, for those of you just joining us in our series, he is, um, doesn't beat around the bush. He's a hard hitter, if you will. We found out in James that almost every other verse has an imperative or a command. So some of you enjoy people that shoot it straight that tell you like it is, and James is one of those people, as we found out. So um, so what we're going to do is look at verses 1 through 6 in chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I um, want to start off with a little story. I can remember my five months as a car salesman. It may be hard for some of you to believe, but I sold cars at a lot in Mills River. Uh, some of you have been Jaguar Land Rover, where they have the big Range Rover on top of the hill and off-roading. Well, I did that for five months. And all was going really well until I was, if my memory serves me correctly, I was selling one of my first cars. It was a truck. And usually we don't have many pickup trucks in a lot. We have Range Rover, Land Rover. We had Jaguar. But there was a, a trade-in that was a truck. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to sell this truck. So in the process of trying to sell it, whenever you sold a vehicle, part of the, the perk for the customers, you'd fill up the gas tank. So I went to go fill it, in, fill it up. And all the vehicles we have, um, we had at the lot were uh, gasoline. And uh, as I went to fill up, I, I put in the gasoline, and you guys know where this story is going. I was so excited that closing in on one of my first sales. So I drove it back to the lot, and as I got to the lot, I heard the sound of the engine. It had the diesel engine roar, and I began to think, did I just do what I thought I did? So I had to walk into the manager's office, and you know, you had this young they called me the preacher boy because I, you know, was been in preaching all my life since 15 and um, never had worked at a car lot. And so I had to break to the, the manager's name was Don and said, Don, I'm so sorry. Um, I just filled this truck full of gasoline and I, I heard the, the engine. It sounds like a diesel. So he went out. Sure enough, it was a diesel. And um, they, they basically had to take it to a special place. And drain out every ounce of gasoline, and we prayed that the engine wasn't ruined. And uh, so, anyways, I ended up selling the, the truck, but I didn't make any profit because it it cost so much money uh, just to correct the, the damage it had made. So I began to think later about this that sometimes, you know, that we have funny stories where we we we've blown it. And some of you can think of little things like that. But what about if your problems are bigger? I don't know about you, but sometimes I ask the question, why am I struggling so hard with myself? You guys ever ask that, why do I struggle so hard with myself? Well, we're going we're gonna to address that question, that problem we all have. That whenever you find yourself at the center of every argument, whenever the same issues keep repeating wherever you go, whenever you find yourself in the same problem over and over again, it just might be, that in the midst of the struggle, your greatest enemy is your inner me. It's been said that wherever you go, there you are. You can change relationships, you can change jobs, you can change a lot of things. But wherever you go, there you find yourself. 
So James is going to address it. These are one of the sermons that you don't want to send to a friend because James is going to say, look at yourself. You ever hear a sermon? I wish my wife would hear this. Where is she at? Or I wish my, my husband or whatever. My, this is a sermon that it's going to be directed. James is going to send it just for us. So we're going to talk about how to overcome the enemy of your inner me. You guys ready to jump into God's word? All right. James 4, starting in verse 1. He says, where do wars and fights come from? And before we answer that, many of us will say, well, it's the other person's fault. But listen to what James says. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive. Because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let us pray. Father, we know that your word is powerful, and it's not always easy to take an introspective look at ourselves. But God, as we address this question we struggle with, why are we struggling so hard with ourselves? Help us to find truths that will transform our hearts. Give us the understanding of how our greatest enemy is often inside of us. Help us understand what your word has to say. And we pray your blessing will be upon your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a little preview as we jump into the text. We're going to talk about how the greatest enemy is often your inner me. But it's going to end with hope. There is a solution. So some of you are like, man, I came to church on the wrong Sunday. Don't worry, it's going to end positive. But first of all, we've got to address the enemy of your enemy. One Point number one. My greatest enemy is often myself. Verse 1 says, where do wars and fights come from among you? And as we ask that question, many of us would say it's the other person's fault. And really the blame game goes back to the Garden of Eden. If you remember in Genesis 3, whenever Eve took the forbidden fruit and then Adam ate it. You remember what happened when God says, what happened? Why did you eat the fruit I told you not to? He talks to Adam first and said, well, God, this lovely lady next to me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. And then, okay, Eve, what did you do? Eve says, well, it was that snake, you know, the snake tricked me. So the blame game started in Genesis 3. And James, what he's trying to do, and keep in mind the background, he's addressing Jewish Christians who are scattered abroad because of persecution. Many of them are blaming their circumstances, persecution. You know, I used to have great resources, now I don't, I've been... Let go of my job because I'm a Christian. The excuses went on and on in that day and time. So he said, did you realize the greatest challenge as far as strife? It doesn't come from without. It comes from within. So it says, where do wars and fights come from? The word wars talks about like a general war, the big battle. And fights refer to individual battles, individual skirmishes. So he's saying the big battle and the small daily battles, where do they come from? And it says, do they not come 
from your desires for pleasure. That word pleasure, you might want to underline it in your, your Bible. It comes from where we get our word hedonism from. And the idea of hedonism is basically it's the playboy lifestyle. Life's all about pleasure and happiness. It's living by what makes you feel good. The mantra of hedonism is if it makes you feel good, it can't be that bad. And James says when you're living that type of lifestyle and you're also trying to follow Christ and you're trying to be a Christian, there's going to be a battle because how many of us realize what God wants us to follow and what the world is trying to draw us to? Usually they're at opposites with each other. I read a story about two men that decided they were doing a guy's night out on the town and they went to a restaurant and they wanted to save money, so they decided to order the big fish platter. And the waiter came out and brought out, uh, it was two pieces of fish, and handed it to one of the gentlemen. And the, guy, the first guy looked at the platter of fish and noticed there was one piece that was much larger than the second piece. So he was at a conundrum, what do I do? So he gave his friend the small piece and he took the big piece. And the other man at the table got really upset and basically let him have it. How dare you, you know, take... Be so selfish to take the big piece. And he said, okay, let me ask you a question. If the waiter would have given you the platter, which fish would you have taken? He said, well, of course. I would have taken the small piece and given you the big fish, big piece. And he said, well, it turned out the way you wanted anyway, so let's eat. <laughs> so what do we do when these desires and these fights come from? James says that these, these desires war within our lives. And what he wants us to do is realize your greatest enemy, as far as strife, it's your inner me. So a lot of times it's easy to blame others, but what James is going to encourage us to do through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is look in yourself. Look at the mirror. Number two, much of my conflict comes from not getting what I really want. For those of you who have grandkids and children, you know one of the first things that kids say is, mine. Isn't it sad that many of us never grow out of that stage, even as adults? The toys get bigger and more expensive, but they continue on. Look, continue to read verse 1 and 2. It says, do, not they come, do they not come from the desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and war. Let me ask you a question. Is it wrong to want to be happy? Absolutely not. The problem is when we pursue happiness as our end goal. The American dream may be the pursuit of happiness, but the Christian calling is the pursuit of Christ. Now, if happiness is a byproduct of the pursuit, that's great. But happiness should never be your goal. If, happy, if, if your goal is just to be happy in life, that's a very superficial life. But if your goal is to pursue Christ, regardless of the circumstances, and happiness is the byproduct, that's fine. God doesn't want us to like live miserable lives. He wants us to live joyful lives. But happiness, if you ever looked at the acrostic, some of you remember this in school, H-A-P-P-Y, having another person please you. Well, we live in a fallen world, and not often will other people please us or make us happy. Now, for you ladies who love shopping, Whenever you get to go on that shopping spree, you feel happy. But a day later, when you have to return an item and you have to wait in that long return line, you don't feel so happy at that point, do you? Uh, for you gentlemen that love eating that steak dinner, but then you eat, ate too much and you have the upset stomach, you know what I'm talking about? You were happy during the process, 
the end result, weren't too happy. So James says we try to find personal satisfaction over so many things. We lust after more, yet we're still unsatisfied. Sometimes the madness turns into murder. And you're like, well, I've never murdered anyone. Well, have you ever had hatred towards someone that had something you wanted? Jesus said if you've hated a brother or sister, you've already committed murder in your heart. So James says, listen, sometimes the greatest conflict doesn't come from without. It comes from within. So let's get personal. Let's talk about the church for a moment. We talked about your life. I want to take the pressure off you for a sec. What about church fights? How many of you have ever been in a church fight? Raise your hand. All right. Most of the people who are honest. (laughs) What causes church fights? Because James is writing to Christians, and many of them had church fights. Well, if you're listening, God, if you'll notice, petty issues like the color of the carpet. Did you know some churches have split over the color of the carpet? Green or red or, you know. What about style issues like the preference of the music or the length of the service? I'll never forget when I was in Texas, I, um, I had a roommate that was an oil rancher. He was a businessman. And he used to tell me, Timothy, you need to preach a little longer than, than you'd think because people want to feel like they've been at church. But a lot of people would disagree with that. They, they want to get out within an hour. But his, his idea was make sure you, you give them what they came for. Give them the word. Um, what about personality issues? You prefer one leader above another, one Sunday school teacher above another, and sometimes that can pr- produce petty quarrels. What about insecurity issues where someone gets a leadership position in a church and it goes to their head and they, they have this authoritarian issue? Well, these are some of the issues. Tom Rainer, many of you know of him. He's the president of Lifeway that produces the Southern Baptist curriculum. He posted an online social media survey, and you've got to be careful with online surveys because you're going to get all kinds of responses. But he posted the question to churches all across, all across the world, if you've been in a church fight or conflict, what was the normal cause? And he said the normal one was the temperature in the worship center, the color of the carpet, order of worship, and the color of the walls. Those were the top four. But then he picked out 25 of his favorites, and I'm not going to read all of them to you, but now tell me if you've ever heard of this. And these are true stories. One church had a major conflict over the argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Thankfully, we don't have to deal with that issue here. But arguing how long the worship pastor's beard should be. One church had a fight over whether or not a children's playground should be used or they should build a cemetery. They, they had a major division. Do we build a cemetery or a children's playground? A deacon accused another deacon of sending an anonymous letter and decided to settle the matter in the parking lot. True story. Now this one I thought was very unusual. A church dispute of whether or not to install restroom stall dividers in the women's restrooms. <laughs> Tom Brader, who commented on this, says the men should have their dividers too. <laughs> um, I'm picking over a few. A fight over whether to put a picture of Jesus in the foyer. And Tom Rayner comments, I just want to know who took the picture. A petition to have all church staff cleanly shaven. And Tom Rainer said no church planners allowed because many of them have beards. <laughs> Sorry, Adam. That's a shave. All right, let's see what else. Now, this one, uh, for those of you who are in accounting, this, I thought this was, this was intriguing. A big fight arose because the church budget was 10 cents off. Finally, someone gave a dime and solved the problem. Um. I'm just skipping through. There's so many of these. Um, 
An argument at this one church arose whether the church should be allowed to serve deviled eggs at the church meal. <laughs> Tom Rainer quoted, only if it's balanced, balanced with angel food cake for dessert. A disagreement over using the term pot luck instead of pot blessing. <laughs> A church member was rebuked and chastised because she brought vanilla syrup at the coffee server. It looked too much like liquor. So there was a fight over that. So I could go on and on, but the idea is, James says, listen, these quarrels, many of them start with within. And if you will address the enemy of your inner me, a lot of these battles will die down. Number three, how to overcome the enemy of your inner me is so often to act first without talking to God about my desires. Look at verse number two. It says, yet you have not because you do not ask. So with this being said, why do many people not pray? Well, I think one of the reasons why people don't pray to God about their desires is, think about it, if, you're, if, if some of your desires are good and some of your desires aren't so good, would you really want to pray to God? God, I'm, I'm thinking about having an affair. Would you please assist me in that? I mean, would people really pray that way? So a lot of times we realize that often we pray because we don't want to let God in on our dirty secrets. The truth be known, God knows the dirty secrets. He might as well just tell them. And here's the thing about desires that's beautiful. If you will give your heart's desires to him, to Christ, eventually he changes your desires. So the things that you used to want and desire, all of a sudden your wanter has changed. You desire different things. I read a story. It's a wedding tale. Uh, my, my niece Brandy and Aaron got married in the back there. Um, congratulations. They're back there somewhere, newlyweds. So this is a wedding tale, and um, whether the reality of the story, I don't know all the details, but June 6, 1981, year before I was born, Doug Witt and his bride, Sylvia, they, they had this amazing wedding. And Doug wanted to surprise his wife, so they went to this honeymoon suite. And it was late in the night, so they went and they checked in. And he saw there was a sink there, there was a couch there, there was a TV there, but where was the bed? And he didn't realize, but it was this hideaway pull-out bed. You guys ever slept on a hideaway pull-out bed? And he's like, this is, this is what I pay all the money for, this pull-out mattress. So he just couldn't believe it. So he woke up. Both he and Sylvia, their backs were sore. They just felt like, this is for the pits. Talk about honeymoon suite. So he went to the front manager, and he let him have it and said, I can't believe I paid this amount of money. This is the first night of our honeymoon, and we, we slept on a pull-out mattress? Come on. So the, the hotel manager said, did you not go through the door that's right near the closet? And he said, well, I thought that was just a closet. So Doug went back up to the room, and when he opened the door, he found like there was this beautiful bedspread. There was chocolates and candlelit and all this and all this amazing treatment that was waiting for them, but they just didn't open the door. And I think what James is trying to communicate to us is a lot of times you don't pray and you don't have because you don't ask God. There's this door that's only unlocked through prayer. But many of us don't because we're worried about our desires. Listen, God knows your desires. And if you will surrender to them, he will begin to change your desires. Amen. Number four, this is a pushback. Some people will say, well, I do pray. Well, number four is when I do pray, God often says no because my motives are all wrong. So he says, verse three, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss 
that you may spend it upon your pleasures. Uh, my four-year-old daughter, Noelle, she's like her father. She has a sweet tooth. And every day she's asking me for candy, lollipops, chocolate, anything inside. If we have candy there, both she and I want to take it. And it's hard for me to say no since I'm also consuming it as well. So I've had to learn to cut back on my sugar intake. As I told you last week, for those of you who weren't here, I'm working on losing the preacher gut. So I have to cut back on sweets. But the thing is, if I gave her sweets every time she or I wanted it, we both would be in bad shape. So when my daughter comes wanting sweets, I say, no, dear. We do it on Fridays, by the way. It's her fun family Friday. We have sweets, and it's fun. Because if we had desserts every day, both she and I would be in very bad shape. So sometimes when God says no, it's the greatest act of love he can give. Because if he said yes every time, the truth is, for those of you who are married or not married, if God said yes, how many times would you have been married by now? Multiple marriages, multiple divorces. I mean, think about it. Thank God for the times he said no. Because in his foreknowledge, he knew that if he answered that with a yes, you would not be where you are today. Amen. I love what Bill Hybels says, and this is in your notes. If the request is wrong, God says no. If the timing is wrong, God says slow. If you are wrong, God says grow. But if the request is right, if the timing is right, and you are right, God says go. Isn't that beautiful? So it brings up a question of life application. Okay, well, if prayer is so important... Sometimes I don't pray, and I should be praying. God's got all these answers. And when I do pray, sometimes I ask for the wrong things. Uh, how, do, how, do, how does that change in my life? Well, I'm glad you asked those questions. i got seven really practical steps to make your prayer life more effective. The first one is this. Start each prayer with praise and thankfulness. Because who does that turn the attention towards? You or God? If you remember the Lord's Prayer, it starts off with, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. If your prayer starts vertical, it's going to change the horizontal. Number two, remember the needs of others. That keeps you from just praying your your want list and being selfish. So I would encourage you to have a prayer list where you're praying for others. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for your church. Pray for your family. Pray for the people in California, the wildfires. Think about those issues. Number three, surrender your needs to God's timing and provision. A lot of times we're like, well, I can't, I can't bar it, burden God about this. Listen, God knows about every detail of your life, and he's concerned. Psalms 37, 23 says, The steps of the godly are ordered by the Lord, and it takes great delight in their lives, in every detail of their lives. So talk to God about your desires. Number four, confess any known sin to God as he convicts you. Many of you were taught growing up, before you go to bed, you confess your sins. That's too late. You need to confess your sin as it happens. If you mess up and slip up, which we do, there's always a way of escape. But if you do, listen, God's a God of grace. Don't wait till the end of the day or the end of the week or Sunday to confess your sin. Confess it as soon as God convicts you. Amen. Number five, become a ready and quick forgiver when others do you wrong. Because Jesus says if you bring your gift to the altar, you're praying or you're giving a gift, but you have offense with someone, it says first go be reconciled. So the reasons why sometimes God says no to our prayers is he says, I'm not answering that prayer until you get it right with that person. Ouch. Number six, talk to God even about the dark areas of your life. Ask him to change those areas and help you grow in holiness. Here's the thing. God's more aware of your sinfulness than you are. So don't try to hide anything from God. He already knows. And he's the only one who can help you. If you expose it to light, that's what helps it change. And number seven, just practically, 
Pray in faith. Learn to trust God in all areas of your life. Without faith, you can't expect God to answer your prayers with a yes. Many of you know Hebrews 11.6 on your listening guide. It says, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So pray in faith. When you pray in faith to a faithful God about your stressful situation, he is big enough for your biggest problem. He is strong enough for your weakest moment. He is loving enough for your biggest heartbreak. And he is able to come to your rescue if you will call out to Jesus for help. Amen. Number five. Why my biggest enemy is my inner me. I find myself struggling in my relationship with God because I have a stronger desire for the world than for Him. And many of us will say, well, that's not true. Let me, let me ask you this. What happens when you desire other books above the greatest book? What happens when you desire spending time in other places other than in God's places? All of a sudden you find your, your desire shifting. God really gave me, spoke to my heart. Um, I was thinking about how when your children are young, you just love to, they love to spend time with you. And then what happens when your kids become teenagers? <laughs> Not as much. Um, I shared this with the Wednesday night crowd that recently my, my daughter Kira wanted to go on a date with me. And I had just come home from work and dinner and I really didn't have a lot of extra time. But I thought to myself, when she's a teenager, I will long for these days again. So we went on a date. We spent time together. But what the Lord showed me is a lot of times when we're new in Christ, like a child, we want to spend so much time with the Father. We're in church every time the doors are open. We're passionate about Him. But all of a sudden, we, we grow into the teenage years in Christ. And the teenage years in Christ, you don't want to spend time with your parents. You want to do your own thing. Do we not go through that stage in our Christian walk? It's like we have to be drugged to church. We have to be drugged to, you know, read the Bible. But God wants us to grow up and be adults and be mature. But he wants us to keep that childlike faith. Or to say, Daddy, I want to spend time with you. Father, I want to spend time with you. Never lose that childlike intensity and purity. Can I get a uh-huh? Now, James gets really strong in his language. Now, he's talking to church people, and listen to what he calls them. And this is not me saying this to you. This is James talking to us. He says, adulterers and adulteresses. Ouch. James is calling me unfaithful. Wow. He says, do you not know that friendship of the world is an enmity to God, with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, before we get all like, wow, what is he saying? Let me give you an illustration that maybe will help you understand this. I'll talk to the ladies. For those of you who are married, for those of you who want to get married one day, um, imagine if you're getting ready to say the vows before the pastor, or what is it, to have and to hold in sickness and in health, uh, for richer, for poor, uh, till death do us part. What if your husband added a new clause for 364 days of the year? I just need one day free pass. To kind of just be with the guys, live like a single guy of the world. How many of you ladies would enter into that covenant for 364 days of the year? Not a single one. Crickets. Why? I mean, isn't he faithful most of the time? The reason why is you ladies are jealous lovers. You don't want to share your husband with anyone else, even for one day of the year. 
And let's just imagine if your husband was unfaithful one day of the year, would you remember the 364 days of faithfulness or would you remember the one day of unfaithfulness? So you see how God sees us. He's not going to share us with the world. Now, we've got to clarify what the world means. And there's a study note on your outline there. When the Bible talks about not being friendship with the world, it's not talking about people in general. It's talking about the world system that hates God, the world system that's pulling you away from God. Now, when the Bible says, for God so loved the world, he's saying that he loves the people. But when the Bible says you can't be friendship with the world, it's not talking about the people, it's talking about the lifestyles. So in other words, simple, simply put, you always have to love the person, but you always have to hate the sin. And in our world of tolerance, they say the two go together. No, you can love the person and not love what they do. Amen? So when James says, whoever makes himself a friend of the world... He's saying, listen, you love the people, for God's love the world, but you don't follow their lifestyle or the way they think. Amen. Number six, God longs for me to be faithful, but I so easily get distracted by my desires for the sideshow of the world. God longs for me to be faithful. Now, verse five has been said it's one of the most hardest to translate in the whole New Testament. In the King James, it says, or do you not think that the scripture says in vain the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. Other translations has it as the spirit in us has a longing for envy. And either way, either interpretation, both are true in Scripture. Does the Holy Spirit not want us to be faithful? Absolutely. Do we not have a fallen nature that yearns towards jealousy and these battles within us? Absolutely. Either one could be true. So what I want to do is kind of hit both, that you know, God wants us to be faithful. But also within us, there's this craving towards things that we shouldn't. And it's kind of like the song that the church often uh, sings, that the song prone to wonder. You know, it's so hard. Even as a Christian, we're following the spirit and then the flesh gets in. And we felt like, man, I was going, doing so well. And before I know it, I'm on this side. And that's why there's this constant battle between the flesh and the spirit. And James says, listen, if you want to overcome the battle, there's hope. How many of you want hope today? All right, well, here's the good news. You're like, man, I've been sweating through this, this in James. So here's the solution. God always provides a solution. There's never a problem without a solution in God's word. So the solution to the question of why am I struggling so hard to myself, here's the solution. Number one, receive God's grace to overcome the old you so that you can become the new you. Receive God's grace. Look at verse 6. He says, but God gives what? More grace. He gives an even greater grace. Now, it brings up a question. If God's grace is enough for my greatest need, well, why do I need more grace? You ever think about that? Why do I need more grace? Well, maybe because you're a leaky vessel. Maybe because God gives you grace and then all of a sudden it just kind of goes out. But aren't you glad that his mercies are new every morning? His grace kisses you every time you wake up. And his love and his mercy tucks you in at night. He gives more grace. And some of you right now are taking care of elderly parents. I know many of you. And it's hard because your parents are in a state of decline mentally, physically. You know what you need right now? You don't need any easy platitudes. You need more grace to get through it. Some of you young parents in here and with grandkids, some, some days you want to pull your hair out. And you're like, man, I, I can't handle this anymore. And what God continually shows my wife and I with four kids, guess what? He gives more grace. 
He gives you just enough grace to get through the day. Amen. So receive his grace. And number two, I need to reject the tendency to do it my way. That's pride. And start submitting my life to doing it God's way. That's humility. Look at the rest of the verse. But God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. So here's the idea. If your greatest enemy is your inner man, there's this battle struggling. You've got to receive God's grace, but you also have to reject pride because this is a preview for next week, by the way. When you get on the ride of pride, it always comes to a crashing fall. And whenever you're prideful, you're basically saying, I don't need God. I can do it myself. And God says, okay, we'll see how that works. It's not going to work very long. Close with a, a, a final story, and then we're finished. I remember it was um, a little over, well, I guess 10 years ago, about 12 years ago. This is pre-Lori days. Um, I went to a dance at the Grove Park Inn, and uh, I was, you know, dressed up in a prom tux, and it was a nice dance. And in that, in that day and time, I was a little more prideful and cocky, and hopefully a little bit's changed since then. But I remember at this dance, I remember looking down, and I was in shock because my pants started falling down. And I, I'm looking down, and I'm like, this is not good for a dance. And I had not realized it, but I, I was borrowing my brother David's uh, prom tux, and I guess it had dry rotted, and the back of the pants had split. And in the midst of me moving, trying to make an impression, my pants started sliding down. So what do you do in a situation like that? I mean, there's no graceful way to get out of it. The only thing I knew to do, I had this cummerbund on, and I tucked my pants in the cummerbund, and I made it through the night. But that was illustrative of me as that when you have pride, when you're doing this dance of pride, it makes you look a lot worse than you really should be. But when you humble yourself, you become a recipient of God's grace. So here's the application challenge, how to make this stick to daily life, is a lot of us struggle with our inner me so much because we don't renew our inner person, our spiritual self. So I'm going to give you a five-day challenge. For the next five days, some of you may already do this, so continue to do it. Start each morning off with prayer and Bible study. And for those of you, this may be something new. Just a few recommendations. Pick a chapter in John and go through it. John's a great gospel. Pick a chapter in John, chapter day, read through it. For those of you who are more techie and you're always on the road and you're like, I don't have time, there's a Bible app called the Version that you can download. It's free, and you can even have the Bible read to you while you're in the car. So that, that eliminates a lot of excuses. So I think by way of review, I want us to look at ourselves. James has told us that my greatest enemy is often what? Myself. Much of my conflict comes from not getting what I really want. Number three, by way of review, so often act first without talking to God about my desires. What would happen if we would talk to God first before we act? Number four, when I do pray, God often says no because my motives are all wrong. Number five, I find myself struggling with my relationship with God because I have a stronger desire for the world than for Him. Number six, God longs for me to be faithful. But I so easily get distracted by my desires for the sideshow of the world. This is why the battle goes on inside of you. But the good news is this. I can receive God's grace to overcome the old me so that I can walk in newness of life. 
And I can reject the tendency to do it my way and begin to do it God's way. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, your word is powerful and it's strong. And Father, I know this is convicting for all of us because this is within the battle of every Christian, no matter how seasoned the saint is, no matter how many days a person, years a person's been a believer. But Lord, I pray that today we'd realize that we can find victory over those things that bring us down. And right now, everyone in the spirit of prayer, I want to talk to the believers first. How many would say, Timothy, James really hit me right where the battle is. It's in my heart. And often I find myself battling with the, the, the new person and the old man and the flesh and the spirit. And I just, I need to surrender that battle and ask for God's grace. If that's you, raise your hand. Father, you see the hands lifted up. Even as believers, there still can be a battle, as James showed us. Help us, God, not to continue to feed the flesh, but help us to feed the Spirit and be renewed so that the enemy is no longer the inner enemy, but that the inner person is renewed by your word and by prayer. Father, forgive us where we give in to these battles and these desires and give us victory. While the believers are still praying, I want to talk to someone today that maybe hasn't received Christ as their Lord and Savior. And you, of all people, know about the battle. The truth is, your first step is to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because you're not going to win on your own. You will not. But Jesus stands at the door of your heart and He knocks. And if you're willing to invite Jesus in, He will come in. And He will give you a new life. You just have to be willing to receive Him and ask Him to forgive you your sins. So if that's your prayer, right where you're sitting... Say something like this, Jesus, I realize the battle. I realize that I must surrender to you as Lord and Savior. Jesus, forgive me of all my sins. I ask you to step out of heaven and into my heart. I want you to take control of my life to be my Lord and my Savior and my Master. Give me victory over the battle within and without. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. We love you and we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, Amen. At this time, if you'll stand, we have a closing song. If there's a battle that you're going through that you need prayer for, if there's someone in your family going through a situation that you need prayer for, whatever your need is, I'll be at the front. Adam, Miss Judy, we're, our prayer team's going to be here. So respond as the Spirit leads.